0: For the past 13 years, Bill Snavely has been studying and researching a reported aircraft wreck site in the near coastal waters of Buka Island near Papua New Guinea. This site is approximately 100 feet below the ocean's surface and appears to be an aircraft debris field consistent with the Lockheed Electra 10E in which Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan disappeared on July 2, 1937. The wreckage at this site is located directly along the route that Amelia flew in an area that has never been searched. This is the first time in the history of the Earhart investigation that a possible aircraft crash site has been discovered with multiple characteristics of Amelia's Lockheed Electra. In August of 2018, members of Bill's team went to BUCA to conduct a preliminary investigation of the site, connect with the Islanders, and conduct initial dives. The team included marine biologist and filmmaker Stephanie Gordon from Open Boat Films, and Tracy Wildricks, licensed boat captain, aircraft pilot, dive master, and metals expert. The team was led by former U.S. Foreign Service officer Richard Pruitt. The 2018 expedition gathered measurements and other data to assist in evaluating the crash site. These data are under review by experts whose findings will be announced once their evaluation is more complete. The expedition can report that they found a piece of glass approximately six inches in diameter that shares some consistencies with a landing light on the Lockheed Electra 10E. Another expedition to Bucca is currently in the planning stages that will include additional experts and equipment, such as a high-technology underwater submersible capable of enhanced imaging. Back in May of 2018, Bill Snavely came on Astonishing Legends to explain how he found this aircraft and talk about the first expedition he was planning to mount to explore the wreckage. Since then, his team has been and returned, and we wanted to get him back on the phone briefly and talk about what they found and what's next for his project. So tonight, during what is normally a dark week for Astonishing Legends, Amelia Earhart researcher Bill Snavely returns for a short commercial-free bonus show to bring us up to speed on his latest findings and pending plans. Okay, so we're back on the phone here with Bill Snavely, who was last on the show eight months ago, where he talked about the aircraft that he had found and has been researching for over 13 years in Bucca. Since then, Bill has had a team go to Bucca and complete an expedition, or one of their first expeditions, to investigate it further, and he had said that after that happened, he would come back and let us know what they found so bill first of all we wanted to say thank you for coming back on the show we're anxious to get an update
1: scott sure appreciate you inviting me back it has been a little while we uh went ahead and sent over three divers back in august stephanie gordon from open boat films who's director of our cinematography and tracy wildrick's a master diver and richard pruitt our team leader The thrust of the uh, project at that time was to go over and see if we could relocate the plane again, because it had been a better part of uh, seven years since we had been down to it, although we had had some interim divers go down as well. And this was the first American team that we were sending over on this trip. And we also wanted to establish relationships with the local natives and see if we could make uh, contact so that we could dive a number of dives in the future and we're fortunate to say that uh, we were successful in getting the dives in we relocated the plane. And Richard Pruitt did a masterful job as team leader in developing relationships with the local community, and so at this point in time, we have an agreement with the locals to do future dives there on that spot.
0: Is that an exclusive agreement for your team?
1: Yes, it is.
0: So that's great. So at this point, you guys are still the only ones pursuing this particular wreckage. You're the ones pursuing this line of research. And uh, it's going to be up to you guys to figure out as much as you possibly can about this particular aircraft, right?
1: Absolutely. And a fair amount of things have changed since the last time we were there because the coral has done an additional job of encrusting a number of the areas that weren't previously encrusted. So we're having to deal with that at about 105 feet as well.
0: Oh my gosh! How long are your divers able to stay down at that at those depths for at any given for each particular dive?
1: Scott, they're down for about twelve minutes because they have to play it safe and come up safely, and that's one of the reasons that Tracy Wildricks is working with the divers to make sure everyone stays safe. Stephanie Gordon has made uh, probably two thousand dives herself, so she's very competent, and capable, and she's doing the actual filming underwater.
0: So I guess the first question that I have for you, and I think our listeners would have for you too, now that you have uh, returned from there, is have you guys found or did your team find anything that would nullify or cancel out the possibility of this aircraft being Amelia's Electra 10e?
1: Not so far, and we've tried to come up with any idea of any other planes that it could be and so far we haven't been able to find any inconsistencies in the plane we're currently looking at and the plane that amelia was flying we don't know for sure whose plane it is somebody died in it we'd like to identify the parties but things are leaning more toward it possibly being amelia's at this point in time but we're not ready to say any more than it appears to be consistent with the plane she flew
0: On this last expedition, uh, we had been in touch with you after it, and one of the things that I was struck by was the landing gear or the wheel and the fender that you guys had found. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what that looks like and the shape of it and what your experience was or what your team's experience was diving on that?
1: The wheel that we're looking at is lying flat on its side, and it appears to have a fork and also the shape of a... uh, Fender that's rather wide and stubby which appears similar to the fenders that Lockheed had on their airplanes. We're not ready to say it's a Lockheed Fender, but it certainly has the outlines which would make us think that it could well be. It's certainly consistent with the fenders that they had. And so from that perspective, it could well be a Lockheed, but we don't know for sure.
0: And that's fairly encrusted as well.
1: It certainly is, which adds to the difficulty in identifying it. We also have pictures of that same wheel seven years ago in my book, Tracking Amelia Earhart. And it's interesting to notice the difference in the coral formations just even in that time.
0: What can you say to kind of explain to our listeners who don't understand why, if you're down there close to it, you can't just identify it, about how encrusted it is and what's involved in making further identifications?
1: Well, my best analogy would be as if we were used to walking in the woods and looking at certain trees and getting to know them very well, and then all of a sudden it snowed and sleeted. And the whole landscape changed so that what's actually formed around the metal on the the plane no longer has that exact same look to it that it did even seven years ago.
0: Right. So it takes considerably more detective work to determine what is underneath, in the case of this analogy, what's underneath the snow. Well said. Okay. Okay. One of the other things that I think is super interesting about this latest trip is you guys did recover an artifact that you returned to the surface, or, or Stephanie did, I understand. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I would call it Stephanie's fine. Stephanie is tremendously tuned to the underwater topography of fauna, and she's a an underwater biologist, so she's very, very tuned into what's natural and what's not. And she walked past what appeared to be a piece of glass standing on end and looked at it, filmed it where it was in its place, and uh, picked it up. And it's similar to the look of an Electra landing light. And it's at the place where the plane actually hit before it slid down a very steep slope. When I say steep slope, the slope is so steep that if I were skiing, even though I've done a fair amount of skiing in my lifetime, I'd have to think twice about whether I'd go down that slope if I was on snow. (laughs) It's quite a slope. And where the plane touched down or tapped down was just before that. And it ended up with the, I don't know how far the uh, piece rolled, but it was sitting on its side, excuse me, like a coin on its side when we found it not flat.
0: You said she walked by it. Does that mean this piece of glass was in shallow water?
1: It was in relatively shallow water and right where the uh, skid marks show from where the plane went under and knocked the coral loose. I mean, that's still visible these many years later.
0: All right, so am I correct in understanding that you guys have identified the point of impact for this aircraft? Regardless of whether or not this is Amelia's Electra 10E, you guys know where this plane hit and you have found this artifact, this piece of glass that appears to be consistent with the landing lights on an electrotene, which are the two lights in the nose. And then there's also a debris field from where this plane made its way down this steep slope to its final resting place, possibly over a a long period of time, just brought down by gravity and current, right?
1: Yes, and I don't know, honestly, how long it took to go down that steep slope. I really don't have a feel for it, but it made its way at some point down it and got to within probably about four feet of the uh, bottom of the slope where it ended up and where we find it today.
0: Okay. So that might've been a quick process of a week or two, or it may be months or it may have even been decades. We don't really know. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So this expedition that you recently conducted, it's a finite operation. I mean, you can only send folks over there until you run out of time and run out of money. You've already been self-funding this entire thing for over 13 years with your own time and going out of pocket, I guess what happens next? What's on the horizon now that you've found even more intriguing information and you haven't been able to rule it out as being her aircraft?
1: Well, we're really excited to get back over there. We're just absolutely itching to get back over there and find out whose plane it is. But to do that, we're going to need help to be able to get the second dive put together. And that's why I'm asking for some help to fund a project through a GoFundMe at projectblueangel.com if we can. But i think uh, it is going to be probably the area of the cockpit and the other areas right around that that we're probably going to home in on this next time and it's kind of exciting to tell you the truth and stephanie i know and tracy can't wait to get back over there the locals are very anxious to know as well so it's a question of being able to get sufficient resources together to be able to put it together because I'm not a rich man and I've taken it about as far as I can out of my own pocket.
0: How much funding are you needing to get to mount this second expedition to get to the bottom of things?
1: Well, to do everything we need, we put in sufficient money so that we could do whatever comes after this to get everything done. And we're asking for 200000 to be able to put everything together that we need to we probably can get the divers over there for a portion of that if we have to. But we also, keep in mind, have other things that are going to need to be examined. And we're probably going to have a third dive over there because this is slow going. This is a question of 12 minutes underwater when you've got a tremendous amount of coral built up. So it's going to take some time. And we don't want to underestimate what it's going to run us to get there and uh, get back because we don't want to keep asking for funds. And fortunately, people have already started funding us, and uh, I'm certainly grateful.
0: It seems to me also that there's a little bit of a sense of urgency because you've got changing weather, you've got the continued growth of coral as the time passes. And then also you were talking to me a few months ago about a possible shift in the local politics as well that might affect your ability to dive.
1: Yes, the area that we're looking at is called the Autonomous Region of Bouca and Bougainville. And they're going to be entirely independent in the future of Papua New Guinea. And so there's probably going to be some expected turbulence in the changeover from Papua to local authority on it. And we don't know what that's going to do in the long run. So the natives have said, get over here as soon as you can and see if we can't solve the mystery now rather than... uh, run into a a problem with a difference in government, whatever.
0: When are you hoping to mount this next expedition?
1: We would really like to go mid-spring this year. Okay. And it's just a matter of whether or not we can uh, get the resources, financial resources together quickly enough to do that or not. And I just don't know that at, at this time, but we're juggling that at the same time that we're also... Dealing with that coral, because every day it just keeps uh, going at the aluminum and just pulverizing it as much as I hate to say it. And we need to be able to protect what's there. That's my concern.
0: If this aircraft starts to look like it might not be her plane, are you still determined to tell its story to the rest of the world?
1: absolutely somebody died in that plane and somebody's family's been missing a family member for 81 years and i think one person out there missing should be considered very very important or two people missing out there because the local natives said they were two on board the plane so yes i would uh, be just as interested in finding out who it was and following it through and letting the family know to give them some closure. That's
0: interesting. And before I let you go, I did want to touch on, for listeners who didn't hear your last appearance on our show back in May of 2018, I did want to touch on the similarities between this aircraft over the 13 years of research that you've done to her aircraft, specifically something that you just said, this plane crashed 81 years ago, which that in itself ties in with when she disappeared. And we know that because the crash was witnessed by a local islander, right? Correct. Okay.
1: The uh, local islander saw it and it was during a period of a storm. And the latest word I've got on it is that the individual was very near shore and was getting back to shore with a terrible storm out and looked up and saw this plane come in with the left wing on fire and ditch and land and it was so traumatic to him at the time that he he wondered if it was the second coming and went to his priest <laughs> to ask ask what the deal was uh-huh. the other reason that we are interested in it is uh not only is the timing interesting but the plane's located in an area that's never been searched and right on her route time distance and fuel all appear to match and she didn't fly with full tanks we think she ran low on fuel due to stiff headwinds and she was forced to turn back toward Buka and roba to save the plane and so that's our theory about what happened and why it's in this particular area and i'm just shocked that in 81 years nobody's ever bothered to look in that area for it because it's right on her route
0: and you're so sure of your theory on that that even if this aircraft turned out not to be her Electra, that you're convinced that it's in the area somewhere because that's what you believe she and Fred Noonan did.
1: Yeah, I did the math on it. And the first third of her trip, she was an hour late, seven hours into her trip. She radioed in, I'm doing 159 miles an hour. 20 minutes later, she flew over Nukamanu and they realized they were only averaging 107 nautical miles an hour ground speed.
0: Because of the headwinds.
1: Because of the headwinds, there was 26-mile-an-hour headwinds sustained all the way to 22 knots at Howland. And it was just part of the Pacific trade winds that shift direction every six months and blow consistently, and nobody bothered to tell her about it. The day before, she said, the wind and the clouds are blowing in the wrong direction, and unfortunately, we do for six months at a time. When I did the fuel calculations, when she flew over Nauru, she was just over halfway on the route. And it was at night, and the phosphate lights were on. And she said she saw the phosphate, solar lights ahead. And by then, I did the calculations on the fuel. She took off with 950 gallons of gas and couldn't fly with full tanks at 1,100, simply because the runway wasn't long enough at 3,000 feet to accommodate that plane couldn't weigh more than fifteen thousand three hundred pounds and she was at max weight at the time. So she flew with not full tanks, forced to by the envelope, Lockheed's envelope, and then hits the headwind. And I calculated she was down at three hundred and twenty two gallons at Naru, just over halfway. And if she had insisted on going forward, she would have needed four hundred and twenty eight gallons to come in just on fumes. The plane literally would have fallen out of the skies at 19 hours and 10 minutes if she'd insisted on flying for Howland anyway, and it didn't. And the only way I could avoid it would be to go from 48-gallon burn rate back to a 38-gallon burn rate by having a tailwind.
0: By turning around and taking advantage of the tailwind, right. You got it. So, And they did all that math and probably figured that out and would have, like you said, returned to repair the aircraft. And I think you said back in May, they also would have had a shot at taking off again and making a second attempt if they could pull that off.
1: Yeah, and could have flown over, gotten to Rabao, turned around, and flown back out of there.
0: And completed their original goal.
1: It would have been possible. Right. So, yeah, I think the efforts were to save the plane. And the other pieces that make you think that there was a turnaround was... uh, Stafford, who was in telemetry at Houston with the Apollo 13, and he was in charge of where it was going spaceship was going to land. And he said, this doesn't make sense to me. Why she's saying I'm about 200 miles out at 1800 hours? It should, she should know exactly where she is. But since she turned back to the West, there's no sun line going West. But Amelia and Fred were so thinking and smart even after that many hours of flying that they flew over book i think at 19 hours and 12 minutes because they reported must be on you but can't see you i think that reports aimed toward book and not toward Howland. and at 19 hours and 28 minutes she's reported on the itasca as circling the airplane which i think was to face east I did the Sunline report, and the Sunline's coming at them at 1,036.5 miles an hour, moving toward the west, and it would have crossed them seven minutes later, and you hear that, I'm flying on the 157337, flying north-south mentioned. And that was mentioned 39 minutes after the Sun Line actually crossed her Abuca. She never crossed the Sun Line flying toward Howland because she would have had to fly toward Howland for 18 hours and she didn't.
0: So everything adds up. It really does add up right now.
1: So the only thing that I'm pretty sure of is that she had to turn back and it wasn't a choice. Any smart cookie would have. I've asked uh, people would have flown that same route later. I said, what would you have done? And each one immediately said I'd turn back. It's a flight radius, and you don't go past that. You just don't. They were smart people, and, and they really, really wanted to save the plane. The irony of it is they would have made it in fine because they had enough fuel to get to Buka and possibly Rabao, but they didn't count on the thunderstorm that took them down. And she would, they were flying at 1,000 feet, but you just don't punch a hole in a in a thunderstorm. Downdrafts just are wicked.
0: Well, Bill, this is also fascinating. Thank you so much for coming back and talking about what you guys have already found. Uh, we really hope that you can get back there and that you guys manage to get funded because this story just keeps unfolding. I've noticed lately, in fact, that. News of your first expedition seems to be blowing up on the internet, that's for sure. I imagine you're getting a lot of phone calls about these findings, right?
1: We sure all, but we'd like it to be a bigger team of everyone out there also, you know, assisting as we go and consider themselves part of our team as we go look for by uh, helping to fund us so we can get back over there.
0: We hope that that works out too. And we'll share that link and everything, that information at the end of this interview I just want to thank you for coming on. I hope that after this second expedition is completed, God willing, that you'll uh, come back on and share your findings with us.
1: Looking forward to it, Scott. Thanks so much.
0: All right, Bill. Thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it.
1: Sure. Take care.
0: Take care. Well, folks, there you have it. It's entirely possible this man has actually found Amelia Earhart's plane. He's the only Earhart researcher in the game with an aircraft at all, and his theory behind why it might actually be in this location makes perfect sense. If you'd like to hear more elaboration on how he worked this puzzle out, look for our May 5th, 2018 episode of Astonishing Legends called Earhart's Plane Found? With a question mark. If you're interested in possibly rewriting history, and want to give Bill a hand mounting this next expedition to Buka? visit projectblueangel.com or search for Project Blue Angel on GoFundMe. We'll be back with a new show next week. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps.